right. It's so good to worship with you all today. Uh, man, that was a fun video. Um, but all joking aside, um, you know, a very important ministry of uh, serving the local church. And um, there's um, maybe the first thought is, oh, that's going to require some sacrifice. And uh, yes, and, um, you know, I have no problem asking people to sacrifice for the things of God. And so I want to encourage you and come and uh, do a little bit more than you want to, I think is fine. Uh, definitely do it more than you feel like, because if we follow our feelings, we uh, will only try to serve ourselves. And so I want to encourage you in that and, um, you know, and, and to serve at church in different ways. And secondly is just our, our new friends. Man, we just want to sit down and have lunch and uh, share with you about church um, and get to meet some people. And so if you're newer, as Pastor John mentioned, in the First Steps room, it's kind of around the corner. Um, and join us. We're going to have, it's not going to be too long. We're going to have lunch and uh, time to uh, uh, have some fellowship together. So please join us for that. We'd love to sit down and have a meal together with you today. You know, today we're going to be looking at this topic of fear and um, how God dispels our fear, right? And there's kind of two parts to it. The description of the fears that we possess and then how God is the one who dispels these fears and how he is the ultimate answer to our fears. Um, fear is universal. Fear is something that many of us deal with. Um, at one time or another, it's all of us, right? And in, in history, uh, even the most, quote-unquote, courageous of people and the strongest of leaders dealt with fears. You know, the historians tell us that Peter the Great had a big fear, a tremendous fear of bridges. And so he, every time he would cross a bridge, he would literally tremble and weep. Julius Caesar is known to have a fear of thunderstorms. Too, so bad that every time there was a thunderstorm, he would hide out in a particular cave uh, to try to avoid that sound because that scared him so much. It is R.C. Sproul who says about our fears, he says, We are fragile mortals given to fears of every sort. We have a built-in insecurity that no amount of whistling in the dark can uh, uh, mollify. We seek assurance concerning the things that frighten us the most. We are like this. Our condition is like this. You think about this. Why do we have fears? And we call it worry at times. It could be just flat-out fears. Uh, but why do we have them? And why God, we want to see why and how God is the answer. You know, it is the uh, Franklin um, Roosevelt who said this quote, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And that's a powerful quote as I was looking up um, and as I was reading this week and studying. You know, the interesting thing about Roosevelt was he, his life was filled with many difficulties, you know. It started, well, he was born into riches and prestige. He graduated from Harvard. And uh, by the age of 30, he was already a state senator. And so from the eyes of this world, things were going really well. And he was a, a great leader. A few years later, he was appointed as the assistant secretary of the Navy. And so into his 30s, and right before his 40th birthday, he received bad news. He had contracted polio. He would start losing motions in his extremities, couldn't walk, couldn't use his hands and arms too well. 
And so you would think, boy, his life is over. And it is at that time that he, through uh, much uh, physical therapy and um, uh, much hard work, that he started to gain the use of his hands. He was able to walk with the help of wearing braces. And eight years later, he becomes governor of New York, and then he eventually becomes president. And one commentator, one author, writes about him in this way, and he says, when Roosevelt became president, the American nation was paralyzed. How appropriate that a person who had, been per- who had personally conquered fear would lead a nation filled with fear. In steering the country through the Great Depression and, the world, and world War II, FDR put his stamp on society and gained notoriety as one of the greatest American leaders of the 20th century. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself and how true that is. Today we look at the story of Jacob coming back home. Uh, as we have been going through Genesis, uh, we know he spent 20 years under Laban. And during the 20 years, he arrived there with nothing. He ends up leaving with a big family, uh, children, uh, male and female servants, uh, a, a huge amount of livestock and riches. And so now he had become... Uh, very wealthy, and he's going back home. It's been 20 years. If we could remember even a little bit further back that he had wronged Esau. He had stolen the blessing. He had deceived him. He had deceived him his whole life. And so always in the back of his mind, he dreaded going back home, thinking his brother was going to take revenge. And now he's heading home. And this is the scene that we're at. He's about to start heading home. Laban sends him home now. God calls him to go back home. And now as he's going home, he now deals with his fears. And today we want to look at the fears that he faces, which is very universal, very similar to all of our fears, and then how God dispels those fears. And so we're going to look at two main parts. First of all, the fear that he has is the fear of the future. This is a common fear that all of us possess. We call this worrying. What does Matthew 6, 34 say? Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Right? Some translations say do not worry about tomorrow. But this is something we all have, we all deal with. At this point, Jacob hasn't even met Esau yet. But his imagination is running wild. This is what makes us worry. It's projecting our imagination of what the worst case scenario is into the future. And we start asking those dreaded what-if questions. What if this doesn't work out? What if I don't get into this school? What if I don't graduate? What if I don't get a job after I graduate? What if I cannot move up in life? And it goes on and on and on. And if we had a whiteboard and we collected all of our personal what-ifs, we would fill it up. Uh, It would be a big whiteboard. Because all of us deal with the things that have yet to come. And so this is the, uh, from an outsider perspective, this is the foolishness of Jacob. You see, you haven't even met him yet. He might be waiting for you with open arms. He might not even be alive yet. You don't know what you are facing, and yet he is so scared at this point. The fear of the future. And so let me encourage us to think about that. 
What makes us so different from animals is we think about the future. Some of us are wondering, what if I don't have enough for retirement? Uh, what if my children don't achieve A, B, and C? That is what my dreams are. What if I don't get into the next school? What if I don't pass this AP test? And it goes on and on and on. And we worry about things that we have not even faced yet. And this is what worry is and why Jesus says, do not be anxious about what? About tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Let it be. The second thing that he fears here is he has a fear of man. He fears Esau. All of us have some kind of a fear, whether it is the boss, whether it is the enemy, whether it's the ex-something, or whether it's the in-law, whatever it is, we say, oh, we might have some type of uh, fearful feelings when we think about a person. And oftentimes it is the fear of people that lead us to be paralyzed in our emotions. You know, it's interesting because he hears now, he sends his messengers ahead, and when he sends them ahead, he hears back that Esau is coming to meet him. And it says here in verse 6 that we read, And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. And I wonder what the tone of the messengers were like. Oh, Esau's coming. There's 400 men are coming. You know, and he's just shrinking in fear. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. The Bible describes his fear as great. He was terrified. Why? Because he's bringing 400 men with him. He might be thinking back of when, uh, you know, his ancestor, Father Abraham, was conquering the four nations, the four kings, and he only took, in Genesis 14, 318 men, and he conquered four kings. And so he's thinking he's bringing 400. And now he is afraid. He is afraid of men. It is Ed Welch who says this about our fear of men. He says, all experiences of the fear of men shows at least one common feature. People are big. They have grown to idolatrous proportions in our lives. They control us since there is no room in our hearts to worship both God and people. Whenever people are big, God is not. In our day with, especially uh, in our generation with social media, the concern of what do people think, the number of likes or looks or comments or whatever it is, it's a whole new dimension of the fear of others that a generation ago we didn't have to deal with. Now all of a sudden, it's, uh, you probably will catch yourself thinking, should I even post this? What if no one likes this? What if not that many people do? What if someone writes a comment and says it doesn't look good or whatever it is? What do people think? Um, Proverbs 29, 25 says this, the fear of man lays a snare. When we have a fear of man, it's like a snare, it says. It's like a trap. You know, sometimes you see these traps in the wilderness and it, it catches an animal or a coyote or a wolf by the paw and it's holding on. And what happens? The animal cannot move. The animal is paralyzed. So the fear of man, what it does to us, the writer of Proverbs is telling us, 
is now we are paralyzed. We are stuck. We cannot go do God's will. We cannot go and forgive or love or care. All of a sudden, we withdraw. We become social hermits. We don't want to see people. We don't want to talk to people. We don't want to deal with people. There might be so-and-so at school or so-and-so at work, and we try our best to avoid them. If we can know that they're going to be there, maybe I won't go. And the fear of man paralyzes us. Years back, I was speaking at this conference, and I was teaching the Bible, the Gospel of John, and the speaker that was coming up after me was uh, a professor named J.P. Moreland. J.P. Moreland, uh, in the 90s at my seminary, was the most revered, distinguished professor. Uh, it is kind of interesting to have a professor who is known to be very intelligent, and uh, he was known to be very mean, and so there were stories going around and how Dr. Moreland was so mean and tough. So he was the professor in the philosophy classes. If you asked what he thought was a dumb question, you know, teachers always say this, there are no dumb questions, right? He was the professor that would say that was a dumb question. And um, these stories would go around, said, and they would, everyone would say, oh my gosh, he called this guy out for asking a dumb question, and he let him have it. And he talked about this is the problem of American Christian. And he went on a whole uh, lecture about this. So I avoided taking his class. I said, I don't want to ask a dumb question, right? Can you imagine that? So the myths about him went around, but he was up after me to give his lecture on whatever topic it was. And as I got in and I scanned the room, I didn't see the, the young people I was supposed to teach to. All I saw was J.P. Moreland in the back, right? Glasses low, his reading glasses looking extra mean. Um, in hindsight, he probably wasn't even really listening. He was going over his notes, waiting for his turn. And, but I remember being so concerned, being so focused about him. And whatever conviction or uh, confidence I brought my preparation into, it all ended with, I think, you know, it might be, it could be, I'm not sure, but this is what. And I remember I just bombed that lecture, right? I remember walking away thinking, why was I so concerned he wasn't even listening? And oftentimes we're like that. Our imagination goes to a place and we think, boy, that person, that group of people, if they can accept me, if I could now gain their applause, what do they think of me? How are they judging me? And then we now get paralyzed in our fear. The writer of Hebrews in Chapter 13, verse 6, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me, he asks. What can man do to me? This was his fear. And the third fear he had is the fear of loss. He had gained quite a bit, right? He went in uh, 20 years ago with nothing. He had come back now a multimillionaire, if we could say uh, literally, I mean, he had wives, he had children, he had so many animals and servants to care for his animals. He was wealthy and he had so much to lose. And this is what his fear was in verse 11. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother. This is his prayer. From the hand of Esau. For I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. He's afraid he has a lot to lose. And isn't it true that the more you live, 
And the more that you accumulate in life, the more worries you have. Right? You're worrying about, like, your cell phone rings. You know, like, you're worried about, uh, man, I should have, you know, gotten an iPhone, right? Um, This phone just rings. And you're worried about different things, right? That was pretty good, right? That was a good joke. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Um, But you're worried about these things. The more we have. And so I hear people, middle-aged people will say to a young adult person, oh, man, life was good. Life was so simple and good when I was your age. Enjoy it now. Right? Before you have kids and this and that. And, oh, the headaches of life. And I hear young adults will tell, tell a collegiate, oh, my gosh, enjoy college now. Right? You, oh, college is good. You can sleep when you want to, wake up when you want to. Boy, life is good. Enjoy it now. And what do we hear? You hear the college students say, you know, to someone younger, oh, man, it was good. Life was good then. It goes down literally until probably a kindergartner would point to a baby, oh, gosh, oh, yeah, life was good, right? Oh, I got to go to school every day. I got to learn the alphabet, A, B, C, and D. And uh, it's tiring, man. It's tiring. And now they're making me vegetables and learning out. Life is good. Diaper is on. You just yell and people take care of you. Isn't life good? And this is how life is. And here is Jacob who has amassed so much and now he is afraid of losing the things around him. It is in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 2. God tells us, it's not, life is not about all the things that you have. He, he says there are people who have a bunch of things but cannot enjoy it. Isn't this so true? Why? Because they don't have God. It says this, A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. How many miserable people have we seen on the news or do we know personally? People that are just, you say, wow, their life is miserable. They are addicted to drugs and different things because they want to escape their life. They don't have the ability to enjoy the things. And here is Jacob having all these things and he's paralyzed. What am I going to do? What am I going to do with all these things? And eventually he splits it in half and he's thinking, boy, if one half gets attacked, I'll at least have another. And he's trying to find security in the things that he has. As we talked about last week with greed and um, how he had uh, dealt with that, with Laban. God gives us the power to enjoy the wealth and the things that we have. It's better, far better to have less and to have a faith in God than to have a lot more and to have no faith. Because he is the one that gives you the ability to enjoy. You will hear often uh, of people who will go on to a missions trip to a poor country. And one of the, the, the common thing we experience is, man, they have nothing but they are happier than us here in Orange County who have so much. And here he is, the fear of losing all these things. He has so much to lose. So here comes God. Here comes the good news. Here comes the gospel. God comes in and dispels our fears. 
the only answer to our fears, ultimately, is God himself in Jesus Christ. Number one in this story um, we see is that God is with us. God goes ahead of us. And I want to talk about God being ahead of us, beside us, behind us. God goes ahead of us. In verse 1, before Jacob starts uh, all of his plans, before he even meets Esau, God meets him there. He sends the angels. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. I love the last two words, they met him. They were there first. It's as if he was starting, and before, he didn't pray yet, he didn't ask God for help. Before he even sought God, they're already there. He sent his angels. In our lives, he's already there ahead of you. Think of the next chapter of life. Whether your next chapter is retirement, or whether it is college, whether it's high school, whether it's having a child, whatever your next chapter is, God is always there, already there. He's there waiting. He's there ahead of us, and we take that to heart, and that comforts us. Just a, a, a little bit ago, uh, someone that I knew dearly, a police officer, a sheriff's officer named Steve Lim, had passed away. He was a, a childhood friend that had passed away, and... Um, he worked at the Special Victims Bureau as a detective, and he handled severe child abuse cases, they said. And so he did good work. Uh, and uh, at his funeral, they had asked me to pray, and I attended the funeral, and I prayed, and I was listening to the eulogies of some of his colleagues. And one of his colleagues, more than one, but one of them uh, shared specifically about the positive attributes of Steve. And he said... He goes, every time we have to go, every morning we have a good breakfast. He's like, oh, he enjoys his breakfast. We would have breakfast, and then we would have these warrants. We would go serve and arrest these bad guys. And he says, he's the first one. He says, all the time, he'd be the first one to knock on the door. And he says, with the kindest, nicest of voice, he would say, hello, sheriff's office. Boom, and he would kick the door down, right? And they, they kind of joked about that. But he said, every single time, he was the first one in. And this, he said, we'd always follow him in. And on a practical level, that is a risk. That is a sacrifice. I love watching cops on YouTube. And whenever there's a scene and I think about it, my personality and my wife knows I wouldn't be the first one in, right? Like, Pastor John's the type. He would probably be the first one in, right? Um, I mean, he would go in first. And then, you know... I would be in the back. Hey, go check it out, right? <laughs> How's Japan? Go check it out, right? Is it okay? Is it safe? <laughs> Take Bobby with you. Go check it out, right? Um, first one in, and they said, oh, it's a source of comfort. I remember hearing that. I remember thinking, oh, how special that is. Now here's the picture of God already there. They're about to start the journey. He's already there. He meets them. His angels are like, oh, Welcome. Welcome to the next chapter of your life. The unknown, the future, the things you worry about. When you get there, God is there. He's meeting you there. He's saying, welcome. Come on on. Let's go. I already paved the way. Let's go together. In Deuteronomy 31.8, Moses reminds us, It is the Lord who goes before you. 
He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. He goes before us. Secondly, he walks beside us, right? God walks beside us. It says here this, and I love this phrase, and when, verse 2, when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. This is God's camp. The camp, just like when you go camping, they all set up tents. This was their area. This was the fire. And when they would get up to move, camp is moving. What he is saying is God is with us. This is God's camp. And he names the place Mahanaim. Mahanaim means two camps. Uh, it's interesting. Well, why would he name it two camps? Uh, the commentaries talk about different reasons why it might be. One of them, and I like, is saying that it's probably where two armies of angels were there. And as he saw the two armies of angels front and back, and they're surrounding them. They're walking with them. Mahanaim, the two camps are with us. The God's angels are with us. And they go and they travel in this way. And thirdly, is God follows behind us. Look at verse 9, if you would, for a moment. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of, this is his prayer, all right? And God of my father Isaac, O Lord, you who said, return to your country, to your kindred, that I may do you good. He is in this prayer reflecting on God's promises. God, you promised. You told me to return. You're going to do good to me. Is this going to happen? And he's already referring to the accomplished work he's going to get to his back to his hometown God is going to bless him he says you already said that and that is true verse 12 again he reminds God as if God needs reminding I will show you do you good and make your offspring as a sand of the sea which cannot be outnumbered for multitude will be numbered for multitude that God you said you will be there you said, you will make sure I make it. And he's reminding God of these promises. God will be there till the end. God is following behind you in your life. There's a tragic story of a couple, Thomas and Eileen Longergan. Uh, they had went on a scuba diving uh, trip in Australia. Uh, this was a, such an infamous case, they made a movie about it years later called open water, right? They're scuba diving. When they pop out of the water, the boat, the guide, the group is gone, and they're in the middle of the ocean. It says there, and I was reading upon it a little bit, that it took them, the crew members that took them, they realized they left two people behind 48 hours later as they were cleaning the boat. Oh, wait a minute, you know? Oh, whose flip-flops are these? Wait a minute, wait a minute. 48 hours later, they were left behind in this way. And just in case God might forget, here is Jacob saying, remember God, you said you're going to be there. You said you're going to get me back home. You said you're going to watch over me. God, are you sure you're there? And let me tell you, this is what the gospel is. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ says you cannot earn it. You cannot lose it because it is a gift from God. Jesus Christ died for you and he will make sure that you get home. What comfort that brings to know that I cannot lose it. Because if we could have lost our salvation, let's be frank, all of us would have lost it. None of us would have been here. If it was up to us, we couldn't be religious enough. We couldn't be faithful enough. But it is by God's grace. Even in our loss and in our death, He is there. He gets us home. There's a young lady um, who is worshiping with us online who is fighting cancer named Lily, uh, cousins with um, Sean, our, our dear brother who mans the sound. Um, and I got to visit, and it had spread to her brain, and we would sit there, I would sit there with her husband Larry, and we would talk and share and hear their story of how they met and so on. I would read scripture, we'd pray. And so last night I get the kind of the unwanted call, you know, that she had passed in her sleep. And so I arrived yesterday around 7.30 to her home uh, to visit with the family. There's not much to say to a parent that has lost a daughter or a, a, wife, a husband who has lost his wife or to a brother who's lost a sister. And I went and, um, you know, we had gathered in her bedroom and there's so many family and friends were already there. There's like over 50 people in a bedroom and we're packed into this room. And it was such a, a powerful picture, you know, uh, of loved ones who were there. Um, and uh, her body was still here with us. And, uh, you know, we spent some time, I shared, uh, and, and prayed. But the assurance that when it's all said and done, is she's with the Lord. Whatever we couldn't do, uh, her faith in Christ is all that she needed. And this is the assurance. There was nothing that could separate us in this way. And so let me, just in your logic, and you might not feel it in your heart, if even death cannot separate us. Even death, the fear, the threat of death, even if someone puts a gun to your head and says, oh, I'm going to take your life, we do not need to fear because we have the one who's conquered death in Jesus Christ loving us in this way. And so let me close as I read Romans 8 for us and let these truths sink in. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, we take this to hearts. We hold on to this truth. Lord, when we lack faith, our fears will rise. When we look to you, we realize there's nothing to fear. So, Lord, we hold on to you. Oh, we thank you, God. 
today, Lord, as we take a few moments to take communion here, would you bless us? And uh, Lord, would you remind us of your sacrificial love for us, the love that guarantees that you are there before us, walking beside us and following to make sure we make it home. We have nothing to fear because of what you did on the cross. We thank you in Jesus' name.